If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Living. From Bambi to The Little Mermaid, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves to Frozen, Disney films have had a huge impact on generations of children and adults around the world. As the Walt Disney Company celebrates its centenary, John Wills, Professor of American History and Culture at the University of Kent, spoke to Matt Elton about the entertainment giant's remarkable origins, its highs and its lows, and the more controversial aspects of its story. John, thank you so much for being with us. This October, October 2023, marks the centenary of the Walt Disney Company, which has become this huge cultural giant and we'll get into some of the issues and the the problems I suppose with that later down the line. Before we go any further though I thought we should talk about the very early days of Disney. What are the things that we need to make sense of to understand the origins of this story? This is a really good starting point to talk about Disney rewinding the clock 100 years. I think for my take one of the things to point out is this could have all gone wrong. This could have not happened. White Disney Company is a behemoth, a giant today. But if we rewind back to the 1920s, Walt Disney, the creator of the company, 
had a number of struggles, a number of challenges that could have ended Disney before it began, in a sense. Disney started off as a Red Cross driver in France in his teens, and he returned to his kind of home area of the Midwest and dabbled in animation, which he'd had some kind of earlier taste for and inkling for as a child. You know, he liked to draw animals growing up. So he dabbled with animation in his late teens, early 20s in the American Midwest. And he also tried to start up some companies. One of them is called the Laughagram Studios, where he created this amazing dentistry cartoon animation whereby he was paid for it $500. So you get a sense of the difference in in money we're talking between then and now. He dabbled with uh, different animation techniques. He tried this company, Laughagram, but ultimately things faltered and didn't work out. Laughagram actually went bankrupt. He had moved to Hollywood, to Los Angeles, as, in a sense, a fresh start, as an escape in 1923, because things had gone badly in the Midwest for him. And, you know, his career was not fate, you know, wasn't destined to be this world-leading man or this world-leading company. Instead, it was all quite unknown what was going to happen. So I think one point to say is definitely that this is not a story that was just, you know, going good from the beginning and that we were destined to have Disney today in its scale. There's also a sense of experimentation and Walt Disney was also a great experimenter and an innovator and was very kind of interested in different things. And this this is really one of the key points with his starting off in Hollywood. He sets up with his brother Roy the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio in October 1923 in a very tiny uh, studio. And what they produce is a series of Alice comedies, which are are great, really. They use a child star called Virginia Davis, who they bring from the Midwest to star in these things. And the Alice comedies are a mixture of live action and cartoon. And if anybody, if you can go watch these things, they're incredible because they give an insight into Disney's tastes and his character. You get trains, you get a Mickey Mouse-style character rodent in them. You get this whole sense of what Disney could become through watching these early Alice comedies. There's a couple of things I wanted to draw out from that, particularly with regard to this sort of initial failure you talked about. What was the stage of... I suppose, filmmaking and animation more specifically at the time we're talking about. And if I'm right in guessing that it was still quite early in its infancy, did that allow people to make mistakes and to start again? Was there there this sense of experimentation more generally? Yeah, I think it's a very different climate at that time to compare to today. And there was a sense of this being the beginning of something. You know, motion pictures, we didn't even have sound this is a very early industry. When you move to Hollywood, Hollywood is really just starting off at that time too. There are other people doing animation, Europeans, and he also is trying to making connections with people in his own country too. One of his friends, an animator called Herb Iwerks, he becomes one of Disney's key people. So there's a broader period, I think, of experimentation. You're right, Matt. And I think this is 
a period where you can make errors or you can try different things. And Disney is almost like throwing ideas against the wall a little bit. And he starts having success with drawing animal characters and producing interesting kind of animations. One of his first ones is Oswald the Lucky Rabbit for Universal. And this is almost like a proto-Mickey Mouse figure that he designs there in the 20s. And as you say, it's quite a random time. He loses the licence, he loses that character, and instead he comes up with Mickey Mouse, who's quite similar in a way. So, there's, yeah, it's a different, different time, definitely. And the other thing that struck me was how young Disney and also iWorks, who you mentioned there, how young they were. Yeah, it's incredible when you think about it. Walt Disney was bankrupt at age 21, <laughs> which is, you know, none of us would like to be in that situation. And he's setting up these businesses in his late teens, early 20s, which in itself is quite incredible and a testament to the sense of drive and dedication you get with this figure. There are lots of criticisms of him, but there's a huge sense of energy about him and a determination to make things work and a perfectionism too that we can get onto. Mm. And we can see some of this innovation in the first cartoon film made with sound, which is in itself a benchmark, which was Steamboat Willie. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, totally. They'd worked on three Mickey Mouse cartoons and this was the one released with sound. It was shown in 1928 to very impressed audiences. It was an innovative piece of work. It's quite a darker side of Mickey Mouse, you might say. We're used to Mickey Mouse being a very safe, clean, very kid-friendly creation in modern days. But the Mickey Mouse in this movie is far more cheeky and far more kind of adult-toned in the humour aspect to it. But it's a fun piece. It's a great piece of work. And you can understand how people fall in love with this character right from the get-go. And we'll come back to how he became such a global cultural icon a little bit later in the conversation. Before we do, it's striking that within a decade of this film we've just mentioned, the Disney company is going on to make Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So in 1937, that was released. And that's on a different scale entirely, isn't it? Yeah. The money that is created by Mickey Mouse, and it's not just the animations, but it's the marketing, the merchandising contracts with other companies, Disney puts that money back, not into profit, but in investing in bigger things. And Snow White is the next big thing. He turns his eye to creating a fully animated feature-length movies and devotes huge amount of dedication from his new studio, Hyperion, in Los Angeles. All the people are lavishing lots of time on creating Snow White. And anybody who sees Snow White can see the beauty of the animation in this, how exceptional the drawings are in this movie. And at the time, seen as his folly, it's nicknamed Disney's folly, because he's spending years working on it. It's expensive, it's over budget. I think at one point, over 300 people are involved. And that's an incredible figure at that time. <laughs> Obviously, thousands of people work on a movie today. But this is a big risk. But for Disney, it pays off. 
One critic said, the world fades away when Mr Disney begins weaving his spell and enchantment takes hold. So you get a real sense there of the fact this was really well received at the time. Yeah, I think that it was universally applauded and it gets Disney into increasingly a global marketplace. He's doing that with Mickey Mouse, but Snow White continues that and ups that level. I think it's shown in over 40 countries. It it provides total, as the quote suggests, a kind of immersion in childlike fantasy, what we might call Disney magic in a way, jump into that world. And Snow White really does that for the audience. It's also, interestingly, an adaptation of a European folk story. It's Disney assimilating somebody else's story and making it his own. And then everybody loves his version of that story, which is an interesting appropriation. But it's something that people are already in Europe familiar with that story to a degree. So it's, it's very clever how he does that. And yeah, in England, they love it. So there's some very funny comments in the British market. The censors initially worry about it being too scary for British kids and suggest that American kids could cope with it better than British ones. And you also get these interesting stories of how people appropriate Disney's Snow White. So, for example, in the North, a police officer gets permission to put the Seven Dwarfs on his road marketing campaign. And I think he prints over 30,000 leaflets with the Seven Dwarfs on, warning people about how to cross the road. So there's appropriation of Disney going on too, which is very intriguing. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. 
And it's interesting that already Disney's characters are becoming so enmeshed with the rest of society. What's also interesting is even in this early film, we can see, I suppose, the roots of things that will later become problems or issues for people in that we've got in Snow White quite a specific image of femininity. Was this at the time regarded as a problem or is it simply that our values have changed as a society since? I think that the reviews of the time make very little mention of it. And so it seems something that's on some levels in step with mainstream culture of that time. That's not to say it's a good step or like an appropriate message. I I don't think it is at all. And it gradually becomes clearer that Disney's in fact promoting quite a conservative message. And we get that in decades that follow, that he's in step with a traditional view of gender, also problematically of race and of other issues too, that reflect undercurrents in society at that time. But in a sense, as a filmmaker, you could be equally challenging those issues or you could be offering a new message. And one criticism of Disney in this period is, no, he's actually enforcing problematic stereotypes and ideas of that, of that time. One film we should talk about in this regard is Song of the South, which is a 1946 live-action animation mix again, which is quite problematic, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, and Disney released that movie very much as almost like this nostalgic lament for for the Cotton South, and it kind of awkwardly, what we call almost like whitewashed that period and suggested that slaveholders in the 19th century, were late 19th century, were looking after and looking out for their slaves and that African-Americans in that period had a joviality, had a lightness to their lives. And undoubtedly, there were some cases of that, but that's not the real story. Instead, it's a disney romantic take on that period and a white romantic take. And it is, you know, it is a problematic movie. And Disney has also acknowledged that fact by restricting access to it. So it's almost cleansed it from its own history. So it's not necessarily a, a typical Disney piece in that, you know, often movies of that period by Disney are a lot safer. But yeah, it, it's almost an embarrassment, I think, for Disney. And hence, it's been buried to some degree. Two of the other films of the same period are widely regarded as classics, however. So we've got Fantasia from 1940 and Bambi in 1942. Did these represent Disney attempting to push the boundaries of what the medium could do? I think Fantasia represented Disney's attempt at almost like high status at showing how animation and his movies represented true artwork, actually. And it's, it's an incredible piece of work. Again, huge amounts of money and uh, periods of time lavished on that movie, a labour of love for him. And equally, Bambi is a very beautiful piece of work connected to Disney forcing his animators to watch live animals parade before them in the studio in order to make sure that their animation techniques were were accurate and they were capturing the movement of creatures realistically. These are mechanisms of huge control that Walt Disney put over his staff and 
I think there's a quest within him to gain recognition for what's being done here. I think Fantasia is really him attempting to challenge actually what people recognise as high status art. And, and in a way, we could also see the good in that of challenging what we think of these things. You've talked a bit already about how Disney's character shaped this whole story. And Disney's one of those figures about whom there are still repeated cultural myths. He's, he's this sort of cultural figure who we're obsessed with in some ways. The rumours that his head was frozen after his death, all this kind of lurid stuff. What's your take on the man, I suppose, and what drove him? <laughs> I think the cryogenically frozen bit is, is brilliant. And you can see that it really fits also the like 60s and 70s ideas of science fiction, whereby, you know, we will come back as heads in the future. But also Disney was doing that in his theme parks by having talking animatronic heads of presidents and famous people. I think he's actually, you're really right to hit on this, Matt. I mean, he's a person that's actually has a lot of myth around him. And he's the real Disney is quite hard to work out or deconstruct. He's a person who who was mythologised, I think, at the time of his living. You know, in the 1950s, he's on television every week. He becomes almost like this father figure for the nation, even arguably other countries around the world. And he's mythologised as good, caring person and a genius, somebody who's looking out for us all. At the same time, gradually we learn that Disney had problematic relations with his staff. So he's very anti-unionisation when animators striked outside Hyperion in 1941. He was very uncomfortable over this. And later at communist hearings, he named people that he didn't like during the strike as retribution for them being there. You know, he took things very personally. There's references on both sides of the whether, whether he was an anti-Semite or whether he was actually somebody who there's records of him giving to charity, to do with Jewish charities. There's conflicting information and it's hard to get beyond the storytelling, the myth-making, and also the lambasting of his character. As an academic, you also don't have access to the Disney archives. They're very protected. The Disney brand is very protected. So getting to the real Disney seems almost impossible for us all. But he's certainly, some things are definitely there. You can see his workaholic nature, his perfectionism, his talent but also lots of control. That's very evident in Disney's life. He was a chain smoker. His anxieties definitely come through in making sure everything fits within his ideas of how the world should be. You mentioned there the McCarthyism of the 1950s, so we should move on to talk about that decade. What were the fortunes of Disney and the Disney Company as we enter the 50s? So in the 50s, to me, it's a real golden period for Disney. We have this sense of Disney entering the post-war in a much better position. In the 50s, it actually starts making profit. So that's quite incredible that it hasn't made profit before when you think of Mickey Mouse or you think of Bambi or some magical creations. Because Disney had a habit of reinvesting all the money in bigger and better projects, it was often on quite a financial tenderhook situation. Whereas in the 50s, Disney seems a lot more financially stable 
and the company starts expanding into a little bit how we know Disney today. So it moves into different sectors. We start having theme parks. We start having live action movies. He moves into nature documentaries too. There's a sense of this becoming more than just a Mickey Mouse enterprise. This is becoming a a genuinely global entertainment provider. And I think he also, his views, uh, he also moves into television, which is a big deal in the 1950s. This is the decade of television. We get a sense that Disney's really kind of expanding and he matches the period, certainly in the United States, because he's somebody who represents white, middle-class, affluent suburbia. He's in tune with the kind of mainstream American ideas and that sort of kind of gels with success in the country too. So the 50s were the decade where American culture and Disney culture started moving in step with each other, essentially. Yeah, I feel that's the case. I think they really do align in that period. Again, that's not to say that's a good thing, because in the 50s, that also means we're getting a very white, middle-class view of the world. And in fact, we'd prefer it if Disney was probably making some challenging issues with his dominance over media, but instead backing up the mainstream view. And in July 1955, the first of Disney's theme parks opened. What happened there and how big a deal was this? <laughs> As you can probably guess, it was, it was a huge deal. Disney had shrewdly co-financed the park with ABC, so the television company. And for weeks, he'd been producing weekly TV shows that talked about Disneyland happening. It was broadcast live on television. Around 90 million or so Americans watched it open. Thousands of people flooded there, many of them without tickets, and instead they climbed fences illegally and jumped inside the park. It was a really big deal, and his theme park concept was new. There was a sense of a truly themed world for people to enter, a family-focused entertainment adventure that hadn't really been done before. Obviously, it borrowed from prior amusement parks around the world. Disney had been to several in Europe prior to Disneyland, and he'd also been to Coney Island in New York, which he particularly had a distaste for because he felt it was adult and rowdy and dirty. So there were ideas that he was drawing from, but Disney, yeah, stamped his authority, really, on the amusement industry with opening... Disneyland in Anaheim, California in, in July 1955. And as you know, you know, it's it grown hugely since then. Um, yeah, it's a big deal. Disney himself died in 1966. Did this change the company's fortunes? Did it change, I suppose, its creative direction? Yes, definitely. And this is testament to how much he single-handedly controlled that company that with his departure the company was left in a kind of quandary about its direction where to go there's a crisis of innovation but also kind of brand identity we get in the 1970s and through to the early 80s a period whereby Disney is really failing to some degree there aren't major film successes there's lots of replication of old ideas. We have financial bids, including Coca-Cola, start wondering whether they can buy Disney. 
it's a company that seems to be floundering for identity without its mastermind, without its leader. And it also isn't really speaking to what's happening in the 1970s, early 80s. It's not kind of socially pivoting in a way to speak to people around the world. So, so there is a sense that this is almost like a midlife crisis a little bit for the Disney company around the 70s. You get a real sense in this period of it trying to chase other cultural trends rather than establish them itself. So we've got things like the black hole, which is in some way aping Star Wars. So there's a real sense, isn't there, I suppose, of it not really knowing how to move into the future. Yeah, the black hole is a great example because you have Star Wars released in 1977 and also to some degree Star Trek is kind of being reborn in that period too. So you have these major juggernauts as we know them today creating ideas around science fiction and Disney jumps into it with the black hole which is a very odd I rewatched it a couple of years ago with my son it's a very odd <laughs> film it it doesn't work it's actually quite dark for Disney too quite scary at times but you can see how it's just trying to be a Disney version of something else it doesn't have a direction and that's very indicative of Disney in that period So what were the forces and the factors that started to help turn things around? One of the main factors was a new mastermind for Disney, a new CEO. So Disney has Michael Eisner join the company as the CEO in 1984. And he finances a range of new feature films that are attempting to refine Disney magic, attempting to do what they do best. He also recognises, and this really suits the time frame of the 1980s, that Disney really needs to push on its, its marketing, its merchandising, its connection with consumer culture. And in 1987, we have the first Disney store open, and Disney stores really become big business for Disney in the 1990s especially. He also looks abroad, and Disney is very much still you know, a globally recognised brand associated with the United States in the same way that McDonald's or Coca-Cola are, but it, it has, a, in a sense, a broader reach through its films. And he starts a bid for a new European park. Eventually, this starts out as Euro Disney or Disneyland Paris, as we now know it. So a kind of expansion plan based around doing what Disney does best. And we start getting some blockbuster movies after a few years. So we have The Little Mermaid in 89. We get The Lion King in the early 1990s. Some of the films that, you know, we, we look back on now and see them as the Disney renaissance, whereby you get you know, some brilliant classic Disney productions. So is this right to see this as being the second golden age for Disney? Yeah, I think so. I think that's how, how scholars see it, that from the late 80s into the 90s, we have, yeah, almost like the second period of Disney, huge success, a golden age for them. And at that time, there aren't too many kind of clashes or seeing that Disney is speaking to a diversity of audiences yet. It's seen as Disney's just being a good company in the early period there. So let's get into that a little bit, because this is an issue which I think people might have spotted in the headlines in more recent years, where Disney seems to have become caught in these, in quote marks, culture war ideas of the things they should be representing, the depictions they should be including. When did that start? And how has it grown to be such a part of this story, I suppose? 
Yeah, it's a good question because in a sense we associate it with very recently, don't we, that Disney is now part of the culture wars, especially in the United States. It's having a very liberal agenda that's clashing with conservative America. But actually, we can date that back to definitely the 1990s when Disney starts growing as a corporation and it starts purchasing companies that have adult or progressive or liberal agendas to them. And this is where the controversy begins, that Disney is moving and shifting away from its complete loyalty to a Walt Disney world of conservative values. And instead, it's growing into something much larger and actually more successful and buying things that represent a more diverse range of voices. So, for example, they buy Miramax, which at the time had just put out Pulp Fiction by Quentin Tarantino. And the ultraviolence of that movie, you know, was at the time very controversial and unpopular with certain segments of the population. And that was seen as, well, this is not, how can this be linked in any way with Disney? Another example is they bought production of Ellen by Ellen DeGeneres, a very successful show, but again, with a very liberal voice, a liberal setting. And in America, at least, you then have a backlash starting against it. So this can be seen as a beginning to the culture wars uh, between Disney and a conservative America. So this has a history to it, and it's certainly not, you know, the last few years. One aspect of the 1990s, which I didn't know about, and which I wanted to get into you a bit, was the plan they had to open a historical theme park in America, exploring that nation's history. Is that right? And what were the issues that were raised with that happening if it was? Yeah, it is right. It completely happened, or in a sense didn't happen because the park didn't go ahead. But there are plans for a Disney history park that was basically American history wrapped up into rides, themed periods. There was this very difficult concept of education, entertainment, history, heritage all being combined together. And one of the problems with it, it was suggested to be around the Haymarket region of Virginia. And that region already had a range of actual heritage sites, Civil War sites that existed prior to the idea and concept of this park. And you you get a backlash against Disney on the grounds of, and this is quite intriguing, I think, that the United States can't trust Disney to tell history in a responsible way. And a range of historians, local heritage members, also concerns over tourism happen. A range of kind of negative comments come out around industry, which is a quite great phrase, that but in a sense, this is not something that Disney should be doing. And so the park actually in the end doesn't go ahead, which I think in, in retrospect highlights that Disney is not undefeatable. I mean, this is, this is a corporation with huge clout politically, financially, in media terms, but it can be limited at times too. And in more recent years, we've seen evidence, I suppose, of Disney itself becoming concerned about the way in which its own history is portrayed and told. Is it right to see things such as the 2013 film Saving Mr Banks, which chronicles the early days of the company, as being an effort to manage the Disney history? 
Yes, I think that there's been a sense of worry over how Walt Disney is perceived and also if his faults are recognised and he's seen as actually reality quite a problematic figure, will that leach into the Walt Disney Company's reputation? Disney has always been very keen to protect its brand and to protect Walt Disney. And Saving Mr Banks was an attempt in the entertainment world to do that by retelling and altering the story of the making of Mary Poppins. It was quite a clever attempt to show him as a very nice person to work with, a caring figure, somebody who had the right message at heart. And really an awkward propaganda piece. I mean, there are lots of qualities to the film, but ultimately a piece of propaganda, and that's how some people rebuffed it for that. I think that that's one of the questions that remains there, really. Does Disney need to tackle more some of its problematic history and also some of the darker side of Walt Disney himself? When we look back at this history, if you had to select, I suppose, four or five films that you think tell us interesting things about moments in the story or that we haven't previously championed that we should, which would you choose? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) Um, I think that there's lots of different sides to Disney and we can package it as one single entity and increasingly that's not the case because of the procurement of Marvel, the buying of the Star Wars franchise... There's no longer a kind of single Disney image. So I think one thing to think about with that is choosing films that reflect that diversity. I mean, for me, some recent films that I've loved, I mean, Elemental and Strange World are both great examples of Disney building in a very modern, liberal storytelling technique and movies that touch our emotions but also teaches valuable lessons about how to welcome people from different backgrounds different genders different sexualities kids are watching those films and learning i feel very you know solid family values of the 21st century and that that kind of links us to one of the strengths of disney is this sense of providing good family entertainment so i think both of those films are great I think Frozen, in a sense, for a similar reason, although I wouldn't want to watch it again. as uh, I think I've seen it far too many times and let, let it go. I, I probably need to let go in terms of it being an earworm. But, you know, that, that was a very important piece for showing that heroes don't need to be males, that a woman doesn't need a man to get by in a story in a movie. There have been some brilliant kind of challenges to very old-fashioned views that Disney used to promote have been successfully recast, and now Disney is speaking for those progressive ideas. But I, I also love, equally, some of the classic Walt Disney pieces. I mean, you, we spoke of Steamboat Willie and we spoke of Bambi. I show Bambi in my classes because it's such a beautiful piece and an emotive piece to watch. And while it's, it was a labour of love, it equally had 
an animal rights message to it. You could take Bambi as a, a story, an anti-hunting parable, and it questioned the idea of how we treat animals because of its story of a deer being lost and a deer's mother being killed. It had a power to it. And so I think there's a huge range to choose from. And the final one I'd probably say would be Mary Poppins. This is probably controversial for a British audience because of Dick Van Dyke's <laughs> mockney cockney accent. But, you know, Mary Poppins is a beautiful, breathtaking story. And I, I love how it does stereotype London massively, but we have a beautiful tale there. And it, it's spellbinding to watch. I still think it stands today as an incredible piece of movie making. It's so interesting that you mentioned Bambi there, because I can remember being taken by my grandmother to see Bambi in the mid 80s, which is 40 years after it was released. And I think that perhaps speaks to the longevity, culturally speaking, of these films. What do you think is the overall and the long-lasting cultural impact of Disney and the company he set up all those years ago? I think that one thing to recognise is that Disney saw the importance of visual culture in the 20th century and rode on that and exploited that. You know, the 20th century was the age of television, the age of images, of mass marketing. And Disney is very much part of that story of, our, of us turning to the image, something that we take for granted now in the 21st century. He was you know, one of the people who was part of that trend and connected very much with it. He also very much connected with consumption and how we consume everything and we love collecting everything. I mean, when you talk about Bambi, Part of the reason is Disney kept re-releasing it on different formats at the cinema, video cassettes, DVDs, merchandising, but keeping these stories alive for us. And I think Disney has a power to it across this period, of, across these hundred years, because we're fascinated with ideas of escape, of joy, and of returning to our childhood. And, you know, nostalgia is a huge enterprise and addiction in our lives now and Disney just Disney realized the power of returning to special times and having wonderful things happen to us and during periods such as the Great Depression, wartime, economic poverty he represented something more positive to us all. That was John Wells. You can find out more from John about Disney's history in the December issue of BBC History magazine, on sale from 26th of October. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.